Good morning. Uh, please turn your Bibles to the book of Judges and chapter 19. We continue we're looking at the last five uh, chapters of the book of Judges. Our congregation has worked our way through the whole book. And we saw in chapters 17 and 18 the story of uh, one man, Micah, and uh, his idols and how that spread to the tribe of Dan and uh, just the results of religious confusion in the land. And now today, uh, we're looking at how that confusion plays out in the moral uh, society and culture uh, that's left behind. Uh, one commentator calls this passage a story of moral depravity unequaled in all of scripture. And uh, if you are visiting, apologies in advance. This was maybe not the best week to come a uh, very challenging passage, but we pray that the Lord will bless us and help us as we think it through together. So let's give attention to God's word, beginning at Judges 19. And it came to pass in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So he brought him into her father's house and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him and he stayed with him three days, so they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, look, look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddle donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jebus and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, come, please, let us turn aside into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gabeah. So he said to his servant, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gabeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gabeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go in to lodge in Gabeah. And when they went in, he sat down in the open square of the city for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. And just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, who was also from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gabeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. 
And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square in the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house, although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant and for the young man who is with your servant. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not, do, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us. Uh, well, since the beginning of this uh, ser sermon series, I've been sort of dreading uh, this passage. Uh, it's difficult to read it, let alone uh, preach on it and talk about it. I think if this was a movie, uh, we, we probably definitely wouldn't let our children watch it. Uh, I think many of us wouldn't watch it ourselves and we would think this kind of um, this kind of thing really has no place in the church and yet we need to realize that what we just read actually happened and it happened among the people of God and that really is part of the point which is that the church shouldn't look like the world and yet, it does. Sometimes it looks all too much like the world. And what we're seeing here is the inevitable process that occurs when a culture and a people turn away from God. And this dark and tragic story is here, in a sense, as a wake-up call and as a reminder 
of what is inevitable if we turn away from the Lord. And that's true at a personal level, it's true at a family level, and it's true as a societal level as we're seeing here. And as dark and distressing as that is, it also points us back to the solution, the fact that God has sent a savior into the world to perish for people like this so that we might not have to endure this kind of thing ourselves. And so that's the main point this morning, that in the midst of a collapsing society, your only hope is the savior who perished in place of his people. And if we have any children that are going to try to draw a picture, you might just draw a picture of this man and his wife, his concubine, the text calls her, as they head off on this journey. And uh, who would imagine when we get to the end of the next couple chapters, all that happens as a result uh, of, this, uh, of this trip. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that God wants you to know what happens when people abandon him. You can find this in the, the bulletin this outline. And you'll see that there are some cross-references there. And the first one is a helpful reminder because Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, that's helpful to remind ourselves after reading a passage like this because when Paul wrote that, he was speaking about the Old Testament scripture and that certainly includes the passage we have in front of us this morning. This passage is profitable for God's people and it is helpful for us to be thoroughly equipped to do the work that God wants us to do. And it's hard for us to say in some way we need this passage, but that's exactly what the Bible's telling us. In some way, we need this passage. And I think as we've seen in the last couple of chapters how do-it-yourself religion uh, leads to disasters uh, in families and in personal lives, this is sort of now taking it to the next level. What happens to a society and a culture that turns away from God? And we might complain that this is overly graphic, uh, but perhaps that's part of the point that the devastation that results from turning away from God is graphic. It is terrible, and we need to reckon with that. I know a number of you know uh, Jim Spiegel and his family who worshiped with us for about a year and a half uh, while he was working at, at Lighthouse, and they've now moved on. But Jim had an article just recently in a magazine called The American Reformer, in which he argues, and he's talking about this concept of cultural decay, cultural collapse. And he argued there that at the heart of the cultural decay is a growing and destructive self-indulgence. And, and of course, this is what we're reading about at the end of Judges, right? Every person doing what is right in his or her, her own eyes. That's sort of the definition of self-indulgence. We pursue our own passions. And he argues in, in this article that that flows out of self-worship. And that any time we're worshiping something other than the true God, we're engaged in a sort of unreality. And that that then uh, feeds into our uh, willingness to take liberties as we seek to gratify ourselves in different ways. And I put a quotation from his article in your bulletin. 
He says, every idolatry, whether it be worship of planets, animals, human-made artifacts, or the self, which is very common today, is a fundamental disordering, an invitation to chaos and destruction. The more such chaos we introduce into our lives, the more self-destructively indulgent we become. It is a vicious cycle. And of course, we see that all over the place in our culture today. Uh, where we see the denial of biological reality uh, for the the promoting of this gender confusion. Uh, We see all this support uh, right now that's coming out for terrorists. A fascinating article last week about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, uh, actually a, a, a pundit arguing that Mike Johnson is more dangerous to us than Hamas is. And what's, why is Mike Johnson dangerous? Well, because he's a Bible-believing Christian. And we all know that uh, we should be terrified of Bible-believing Christians. And so as we've turned away right, from God and following him, we see this profound unreality that starts to dominate in our culture. And of course, then that drives things like divorce and illegitimacy and poverty and crime and indigence and sex trafficking and drug use and all the rest of it. Uh, I saw last week, it's so bad now in San Francisco that even McDonald's uh, has to leave uh, San Francisco. And that's saying something for sure. And I know some of you young people have been in uh, driving school recently, and I, I, talking to my own kids, I know they do, they do something that they did all the way back when I was in driving school, which is they show you videos uh, meant to highlight what happens when you drink and drive. And uh, some of it can be graphic and, and really disturbing, the kind of car accidents that happen. And why are they doing that? To try to glorify violence and destruction? No, of course not. To warn people, this is what happens if you drink and drive. This is what happens if you text and drive. And, and so this is sort of what this passage is doing in your Bible. And if it got your attention, and again, you may have been saying, why did we have to read that? God wants to get our attention and to show us what happens in a society that is turned away from God. There is a natural process of collapse. Well, the second thing I want us to see here is that in the midst of a collapsing society, it's easy to tell yourself that things really aren't that bad. And we'll see this in verses one to nine. And you might notice, we'll see this here, we'll see this in the coming chapters, that the author uh, plays these two things. You, You see like a good example of something and then right next to it this this horrifying example and that's by design Uh, in this first chat in this chapter it's it's the pictures of hospitality that we get and uh and and so we portray hospitality in in a couple of different ways and that's sort of important to what the author is trying to show us here well our story begins with a levite and that's a nice transition because the last story was also about a Levite. And, uh, and, and this story, although it seems like it's following right after what we just read in chapter 17 and 18, it, it's, it's likely this happened actually sometime earlier. And I'll mention uh, next week maybe why that is the case. But it, it probably happened sometime earlier. And so we have this Levite who takes a concubine. So children, this is like a second class wife. I, you know, thankfully we don't really have that in our day and age, but this is a, a wife. The text keeps calling the man, the Levite, her husband, uh, so that he's taken her into his family. 
but as a concubine, she doesn't quite have all the rights uh, that a wife would have. And the second uh, verse of our chapter says that she left him and uh, was away from him for uh, four months. Now, in my translation, it says she played the harlot against him. There's some debate about that. If you have the ESV, I think it just says she was unfaithful to him. So it's not clear whether she actually went out uh, with another man or if she was just not happy in this arrangement and went back to her parents. Um, obviously, in, in, in those days, uh, it was a capital offense uh, to commit adultery. She's not punished. She's back with her parents. And it seems like whatever happened, uh, the husband wants her back. So in verse 3, it tells us after these four months that he goes back to speak kindly to her. Like he, he's trying to, to win her back and to bring her back uh, to his house. And his father-in-law is thrilled uh, to have him there. Uh, in verse 4, his father-in-law, the young, man's, the young uh, woman's father, detained him. And he stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. So this is typical uh, Near Eastern hospitality. So he comes in, traveling was very difficult, so staying for three days would be very customary. And so they're feasting, they're eating and drinking, and everything is great. Now, what's interesting here is a lot of the commentators tried to read a lot into this at this point, and they say, well, it looks like the father-in-law's, he's just overzealous to get rid of his daughter again, so that's why all this hospitality is going on, and you see here that only the men are talking to each other, and the woman's not involved in any of these negotiations or conversations, and so they, they try to find all kinds of uh, uh, reasons to, to doubt uh, what's going on, but I think what the author's presenting is just a good picture of hospitality that this is what it is supposed to, to look like, where uh, we're staying, we're eating, we're feasting, and we're spending this time together. And then the father-in-law continues to, to press that, he, that his son-in-law would stay. So uh, after the third day, he convinces him to stay for a fourth day, and then it's into the fifth day, and uh, he convinces him to stay again. And then as he's rising uh, finally to leave on the sixth day, he's even trying to get him to stay uh, once again. And so the whole picture is one of abundant, generous hospitality, not trying to get rid of him at all. And so I think we should see this is a picture of forgiveness. This is a picture of reconciliation and restoration and a picture of hospitality. Now, why is it in there? Some of you may have noticed that uh, our football team won yesterday. A rare Big Ten win. And I know some of you are saying, wait a minute, it's not our football team. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. So, so we beat Wisconsin. And, and you get a picture, and then suddenly uh, people are thinking about, well, if this and this happens, we can make it to a bowl game. And um, we start, you know, the hope that, that has been so thoroughly crushed, just one win uh, brings that hope back to the surface. And we start to believe Again, and we, and we try to tell ourselves the reality that we know is lurking there under the surface isn't really there. And in a sense, uh, that's what's happening in this passage. It's showing you what, what could be happening. It shows you what seems to be happening. But we know that this isn't a collapsing society that's turned its, its back on God. Uh, that if anything, uh, this is just an apparent picture of something good in the midst of something that's really not good. And uh, it reminds us how easy it is 
for us in, in the midst of these kind of situations to look around and to grab onto anything that looks decent. Thus, the one victory over Wisconsin, right? And that, we're grabbing onto that. And, and, and this is sort of uh, what we can do with a passage like this. You see, things aren't really so bad. And isn't it easy to do that in our own lives and in our own families as well? We, we see the warning signs uh, in terms of uh, how we're dealing with temptation in our lives or how we're seeing family members. And we tell ourselves uh, it's nothing, it's nothing to worry about. And we just let it go. And then eventually we see the fruit of that. And uh, the author here wants us to see what could be happening and recognize um, this isn't uh, some sort of cover uh, to what's really going on underneath. It's very easy to tell yourself that things are not so bad. And we see here also, it's thirdly very possible to maintain uh, lofty views and expectations from the people of God. So we see this in verses 10 to 21. The the Levite finally is able to get on his way and he make, starts making the trip, but it's, it's, the day is far gone, so he can't get all the way home. And as he's traveling and the sun is going down and he comes near Jerusalem, although this is before uh, David had subdued Jerusalem, so it's called Jebus at this point, and it's still uh, dwelt in by the Jebusites who are, who are not Israelites, they're not servants of God. And so as they come near, uh, this is they've traveled about six miles at this point. Uh, his servant says, hey, let's go in and stay here and, uh, and we, can, we can rest and then we'll make the rest of the journey the next day. But look at verse 12. His master said to him, we will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gabeah. So adamantly refuses to go stay with the pagans. Like, we can't trust the pagans. We're not going to stay with the pagans. We're going to go on to Gabeah. Well, they do that. They go on to Gabeah, and it says that they go into the open square, and no one takes them in. So they're just sitting there, and the sun has gone down at this point, and that doesn't look really good. But then in verse 16, this old man comes in from the field, and um, he's staying in Gabeah, and he welcomes them into his house and they say look we've got all our own food with us we don't need anything we won't be a bother and uh, down in verse 20 he says hey I will take care of you so they're arguing who's going to be hosting whom here brings them into his house and verse 21 ends again they washed their feet they ate and drank so we end with another picture of hospitality, really genuine hospitality, literally the love of the stranger. This, this is a total stranger. And this man takes him in uh, and, and supports him. And again, so we, we see this in, in the midst of a collapsing culture, this Levite is maintaining his expectation that the people of God are different, that the church is going to be different. The culture may be in a free fall, but at least we know that the church is faithfully following God. But even at this point in the story, there are some little warning flags, right? Why is it that they're out in the, in the town square waiting and no one brings them in? Except this old man who doesn't even live there. He's just there temporarily. He's actually from Ephraim. He's the one who brings them in. 
And, and quite cryptically, he says, whatever you do, do not stay out in the public square. Uh, so it seems like there are these warnings. And, and recognize this is all against the backdrop of the Levite having traveled an extra two hours up until sunset, all with the effort that he wanted to be in a city inhabited by Jewish people, by God's people. He was clinging this idea to this idea that the culture had not so infected the church uh, that he would not be safe there. So he says, God's people will treat us well. God's city will be safe. And uh, we know that he was dreadfully, dreadfully wrong about that. And again, I think it's, it's easy for us to think that the sins in the world aren't impacting the church, uh, that the church is somehow impervious uh, to the culture around it, and, and, and we can often have what are unfulfilled expectations about what's actually happening in the church. We look around, we see, well, the Cong- if, if there's a full sanctuary, then they must be serving God well. I think it's fascinating, and we, we see how this happens oftentimes at a national level, when some famous person converts, and then, and then Christians are just jumping on the, band, the bandwagon. I mean, I hope you didn't jump on the Kanye West bandwagon, right? Because that was literally crazy train off to the races. But that, that's the challenge, where we, we hear things and we're, we're so, uh, you know, so eager to believe um, that the church hasn't been infected by the world, that we often then get ourselves going off in the wrong direction. And that, again, this is where this Levite was. He was absolutely convinced if they just avoided the pagan city and got to Gibeah, everything would be fine. Well, fourthly then, remember that the extent of the decay will eventually and graphically come to light. And and that's what we see happening in verses 22 to 30. Uh, Last week I was, um, I think I was at school and and, uh, the spot on my calf started burning. I'm like, what is going on on my calf? And then I remembered. Uh, Day day before, I'd gone to the dermatologist and the dermatologist said, I don't like that spot on your calf. So she shot it up with, a lidocaine or whatever it was and carved out a pretty good sized chunk of it. And so I was able to totally forget that that was even there uh, until the lidocaine eventually wore off. And I look, cause I don't look at my calves very much. Some of you guys may. And I, there's a, she like took a hunk out of that thing. And so I was like, oh, so that's why that hurts. And um, sometimes it's easy for us to be numbed into uh, not seeing what's really there. And that's sort of what happens in this story. We're, I mean, everything's moving along fine. We're getting hospitality. We're eating and drinking. And then suddenly, the veneer is just ripped off all of this. The, the, uh, the anesthesia wears off, and we begin to feel what's going on under the surface. And so verse 22 tells us that then this mob, uh, the word in my translation was perverted men, Uh, Some translations, it's worthless or wicked. It's literally in the original language, sons of Belial. They're demon demon children, uh, literally, who are coming out and surrounding the house and banging on the door and wanting to to take this this Levite 
visitor who's come under this man's home. And so this man comes out and uh, he, he tries to stop this from happening. He does it by offering uh, the women up. Um, they don't, they're not satisfied, but then it, it tells us that the Levite uh, gives them his concubine. And uh, she's abused all night, uh, collapses on the threshold. And uh, what is really um, so tragic, right? The master uh, arises in the morning and opens the doors of the house and goes out and there she is fallen at the door of the house with her hands uh, on the threshold, uh, sort of reaching out for help. So uh, she's unresponsive and he puts her uh, dead body onto his donkey and takes her home and then he gets out a knife and carves her up and sends her out, her body, uh, to the whole nation, every tribe, uh, calling for the people to act. And um, it, it's, it's an outrage. The whole thing is an outrage. But when you hear that read, you should be immediately thinking of another time in the Bible where something similar happened in the city of Sodom when God sent the angels to warn Lot and the men of that city surrounded the house and wanted to violate the angels they thought were men. And the reason it's so similar is that that is the point, that Israel has become Sodom. The people of God have become Sodom. Commentator Ralph Davis says, the author shows us that even in Israel, some have plunged into the moral abyss of Sodom and eagerly wallow in it in twisted depravity. Now it's interesting, none of these characters have a, have a name. And, and I think that's by design because they are anonymous but they're meant to represent what's happened in the nation at large. Um, it's become a nation that is collapsing. The one man who shows hospitality, he's out there offering up the women uh, to the mob. Uh, the Levite, uh, who certainly would know better, uh, gives his own uh, concubine to save his own uh, skin, and at the end of this seems totally callous with regard to her situation, and certainly desecrating her body rather than giving it a burial. Is, is not in accordance with God's word at all. And, and the point of this is that this is how pagans treat women like property. This is not how God's people are to treat women like property, but that's exactly what's going on here. The women in the story are property. That's because they're living like pagans and Israelites were not supposed to treat strangers this way, right? This is how pagans, i.e. Sodom, this is how you treat strangers to your community, take advantage of them. This is not how Israel was to treat strangers. But again, we see this happening in a city of Israel. And it's hard for us, partly because the author doesn't condemn this. We feel a revulsion because it is pure evil. But be assured this is not anything that the Bible approves of in any way at all. In fact, I put this example in your outline. In Hosea 9, verse 9, this event 
is a benchmark of total corruption. There the prophet says, they are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gebeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. This event uh, is, is a byword in Israel as a sign of total corruption and evil. Now we're having somewhat of a teachable moment in our society right now when we have many students from our elite universities openly celebrating the attacks of Hamas uh, against the Israelite citizens just some weeks ago. And we've seen anti-Semitism on display of, of like nothing in our experience, at least in our lifetimes. And it's very interesting, I have some Jewish friends who are absolutely convinced that the anti-Semitism they need to worry about is that which comes from conservative Christians who believe that the church is the full maturation of Israel. It's a theologic position. But this whole event that has happened has just absolutely blown up that idea because now we see where the anti-Semitism really is in our culture, and it's, it's absolutely shocking. And it's forcing people to reevaluate what's going on. And in many ways, God continues to expose the rot that is at the core of our culture. But, but realize that's actually a blessing for us. It's not good for us to be able to fool ourselves and to tell us everything's fine when it's not fine. And this is just like when the doctor finds a spot that needs to be tested, right? Better to know the truth than to keep going on thinking things are great when they are not. And the same is true in your own life. If the decay is creeping into your own life, you want God to expose it. And this is in fact what this, this text is reminding you, it will come out eventually. Better to turn to the Lord in repentance and seek his grace before that happens. We can try to hide it, but the extent of the decay eventually is revealed. So then finally, this text reminds us that your only hope in the midst of a collapsing society is the savior who perished in your place. It is the Savior. Again, we go back to verse one. It came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. This is the result of everyone doing what is right in his or her eyes. But you know what? I thank God this is not the last chapter in the Bible. Imagine that, if the story just ends here. This isn't the last chapter of the Bible. And God does sing, send a king uh, into the world to rescue his people. And that king came to this bloody collapsing world and entered into it and took the sin of it upon himself. So if this offends you, then think about how offensive it is that the Lord of glory came and paid the price for this and came to redeem a world that is this evil where this kind of thing is possible. And we know this kind of thing, is it, is it possible in our world? Absolutely it's possible in our world. But the Lord Jesus came and willingly submitted himself to a world like this to redeem it and to save for his people, himself a people, and to build an alternate kingdom 
for us to live in, a kingdom of life instead of death, a kingdom that's growing instead of collapsing, a kingdom of blessing and salvation. And so some of these, these uh, verses I put in your outline at the end point us in that direction. Where there, uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's Jesus taking you out of darkness, bringing you into his kingdom of light and making you a people. He's building another culture uh, that, that stands along an opposition to the one that's collapsing around us. And as we read this passage, we should be overflowing with praise to our Lord Jesus who has come and saved us out of such a culture. Jesus himself said in John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. That he comes to give life. He perishes at the hands of evil people. He's the one who's pulled apart in place of his people. That he rises victoriously so that we can have life and be saved from this. And in Romans 8.20, uh, we're told that the creation was subjected to futility because the creation, but, but, um, but not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Here's your source of hope, that Jesus is building a new kingdom. He's going to completely renovate this world and restore it from its corruption, and he's going to replace it with a world of love and life and light and blessing. Now, in one sense, we all live in Gabea. We live in a world that denies God and that seeks self-gratification. And if ever there was a passage to help you remember not to love the world too much, this should be it. This is what you're loving when you love the world too much. But the hope here is that Christ rescues you from this world. And Christ is building a better world, a new heavens and a new earth. And if our faith is in him, he gives us the grace we need to live as pilgrims in this decaying world, even as we look for the hope of the glorious new heavens and new earth that he promises us. So in the midst of a collapsing society, your only hope is the Savior who's allowed himself to perish in your place, to rise victorious so that you might live in his city. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us with these things. Heavenly Father, we confess that uh, this is a very difficult passage for us, and yet we're quite sure that that's why this is in the Bible, that it's meant to make us uncomfortable. Uh, but in a way, you're holding up a mirror and showing us what it looks like uh, when individuals and societies turn away from you, and it can't but be a disaster. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us uh, to the extent that we allow ourselves to be deceived about the sin, especially the sin in our own lives. Uh, Lord, that we um, hold unreasonable views about 
sort of the church being uh, free from this kind of thing. And we pray for your grace. We pray that we would see what our Savior has done and that, Lord, you would protect us from loving the world, but that you, Lord, would give us hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's doing uh, to renovate this world and to build his kingdom. And we pray that each one of us would trust him, would love him, and that you would teach us how to live in the midst of a collapsing society, seeking his will and his grace as we trust him day by day. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now let's respond back to God's word by singing from Psalm 146, selection B. It is a psalm of praise. We praise God for his ultimate victory. Uh, We praise him even as we acknowledge we can't trust in mortal men, as it says. We can't, the solution isn't going to come from uh, from human beings, uh, but it's going to come from God himself. And notice in the final stanza, it talks about how God protects the stranger's stay. He helps the fatherless and widow. That's the kingdom that our Lord is, is building, one in which the stranger is cared for and loved and all uh, the people, all the needy are cared for by the Lord. Let's stand and praise our God together. <clears throat>